Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of July 31st, 2017. On this week's show, we'll be joined by writer Jessica Luther to talk about why, with Jessica Mendoza in the ESPN booth, and Fox debuting and then canceling a show about the first female big leaguer, why so few girls play baseball, and what should be done about it. Then Dan Nosowitz will be here to talk about his piece for Esquire about the death of the high-top basketball shoe. And finally, it'll be my great honor to welcome to the show Will Anderson, the newly crowned champion of Scrabble in North America. Will crushed the field last week in New Orleans to win his first title. We're doing a little Sadie Hawkins thing here today. Joining me in Washington is Slate's editorial director. You may know him, Josh Levine. How does it feel to be me this week, Josh? I always get Sadie Hawkins confused with Sophie B. Hawkins, sort of like Mina Kimes with Bella Caroli and Bella Lugosi. Mm -hmm. If you can Photoshop Sophie B. Hawkins into uh, a hang-up-and-listen scenario for me, because the listeners are now taking requests for Photoshoppery, I would appreciate it. Thank you. Nationwide, more than 100,000 girls play Little League and youth baseball, but after that, the numbers plummet. Just 1,296 girls total played high school baseball last year, according to the National Federation of State High School Associations. How come? Well, partly it's because girls choose to switch to softball, but mostly it's because girls are told they can't or shouldn't play baseball beyond pre-adolescence. There are efforts to change that. Sports writer Jessica Luther joins us now. Earlier this month, she wrote a piece for Bleacher Report titled A Team of Their Own about an all-girls travel baseball team that competes against boys. Hey, Jessica. Hey, how are you? Jessica, you hung out in Miami with a couple of teams in something called Girls Travel Baseball, which forms teams of girls from around the country, travel teams that meet and play in a few tournaments every year. These girls all play in their local leagues and on area travel teams with boys, but they're usually the only girls. This is an effort to change that, right? 
Yeah, so we actually have a U.S. women's national baseball team, which a lot of people don't know about (laughs) the United States. And so Girls Travel Baseball is an effort to start to create a real pipeline to the national team. And so, you know, like you said, most of the time by the by double digits in age, these girls are being pushed out of baseball. And so they're really trying to sort of fill in that gap between nine and 16, which is when you can first try out for the U.S. Women's National Team. And so, yeah, they've sort of cobbled together this idea of bringing these girls from around the country the best. You have to try out to be on girls travel baseball um, to play in these elite tournaments. Uh, Travel ball is a really big deal now as part of the process and and becoming a better baseball player. And so they're trying to find a space for girls in in that arena. This is a really good feature story. It's a really good introduction to the topic, um, which I didn't know much about at all. But the thing that was really striking and amusing to me was that um, any journalist who's interviewed kids, the fun part about it is that they're not programmed is that you don't know what they're going to say. But these girls that you talked to, it seemed like they'd already done so many interviews with local outlets that they were kind of, I mean, you got some, you got a good material out of them, but you noted that they're kind of seemed uh, exhausted a little bit with answering questions about what's it like to be a girl playing baseball. Yeah, absolutely. So there were actually, there were two groups of girls, two teams. There was a 13U and a, an 11U. And the 13-year-olds, they, yeah, they're like old hats at interviews. Like, it was very much this feeling of like, they have already answered all of my questions before. It was hard to, to sort of get them to, um, I don't to, you know, it all felt... Um, like boxed, you know, they, they had done this before. They had their, their, their answer that they give. The 11 U's were adorable and that they just, they certain, they weren't there quite yet, but yeah, a lot of them, when I was doing research and in preparation to go to Miami, I was looking up the different girls and so many of them had already done interviews. Like I found one of them had done an hour long radio show <laughs> and you could watch the YouTube of it. I mean, so they are sort of, they're phenomenons in their local spaces. And so they all have been interviewed by people where they live, um, their hometown heroes in that sense. And so, yeah, it, it was, that was something I hadn't, even though I knew that they had been interviewed before, I hadn't sort of thought about the fact that when I got in front of them, that they would have like, it, it was just sort of wild that, they knew what they were going to say before I finished the questions. Right. Until, though, you asked them and they warmed up to your questions about what it's like to play against boys and how the boys react. And one of the girls you interviewed said, everyone looks at us weird and they're like, oh, a bunch of girls. We can beat them. Then once they see us actually beating them, they start to get scared. They're all crying when we strike them out or tag them out. They throw their helmets and everything. Yeah, when she said that line about crying, I was like, you mean they're really crying? And she's like, oh, yeah, they're crying. Um, and then I think her friend was sitting there and said, they're so emotional, right? Like, they they understand the narratives about all of this, um, and and they just think it's hilarious. Like, they enjoy that aspect of it. And I think that's part of what the coaches at Girls Travel Baseball are trying to do. Like, they understand that these girls are going to go up against teams that are not going to be kind to them simply because they are girls. So part of it is like building a thick skin so that when this happens, they're ready for it. And and that sort of comes out in this bravado that they have. Well, what was great about that is that like the girls are saying the boys are emotional 
Let's yeah. reverse the gender stereotype. And I want to relate a similar story. I've been coaching girls soccer since my daughter was in second grade and she's in 10th grade now. When the team was in fifth grade, we played a game against an all boys team. We tied it up one to one. The boys started panicking. Hands were on their faces. They were like freaking out. There was a, a woman coaching that team and she was an asshole. She was actually yelling at them <laughs> saying, you're losing to girls. You're going to lose to girls. The boys mm-hmm. did wind up. She was bad at, the, at math, too. She was also bad at Because the game was tied. It was. Um, the boys did wind up scoring <laughs> at the very end of the game. Um, but it was the most empowering moment in my, seriously, in my 10 years of coaching these girls. They were like genuinely excited that we can do this. Yeah. And that's a huge thing. And, and I will say like, it, it's as important on the boys side of this. Yes. Like so many of these boys don't ever come in contact with a team of girls. And one of the things, I don't think it made it into the piece, but at this tournament, they kept playing teams and the boys would say to them, oh, we played in this other tournament against you. And the girls couldn't remember that. All the boys are the same to them in a lot of ways, right? (laughs) But like they remember playing these girls at that tournament that year and how they did and all this sort of stuff. They really do stand out and they win. Like they beat these guys. And I mean, when you're there at the game, people come up and like, stand around. I was in in the dugout at one of the games and this woman came up behind me and she started asking me questions and she was so into it because she had played softball and her son had told her like there were this team of girls and she couldn't believe it. And so they get this whole like audience around them um, that includes a lot of the boys. So, I mean, it's, it's quite a phenomenon. I mean, it's really fun to be there and watch how everyone responds to them. Obviously this is a very cool thing. And as you note, um, it is important for boys to see um, girls playing baseball. Would it be better to have a girl or like five girls on each of the teams in the tournament rather than setting up a girls versus boys dynamic where Mm. the boys will just like remember, oh, there was that one team of girls we played one time and that was kind of like a freaky thing and then that never happened again. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I think there just should be more girls in general all over the place, right? And so certainly you get the sort of random girl. All these girls are the random girls in in the different other tournaments that they play when they're the one girl on the team. There was there was one girl who had another girl on her other travel team and yeah. she was the only one like that. Um I think I made a note I think we put it in the piece that there's one player from Massachusetts. And when I asked her, she said she thought she was the only girl in the state of Massachusetts who played baseball. Um, and so at her level. And yeah, so I, I think it would be great if there were more girls sort of scattered throughout. Um, this is like the beginning of fixing the problem, right? right? And it's it, so... Is, is the problem, Jessica, that that girls don't play enough baseball or that we've segregated girls into softball? I mean, is it a Title IX issue? Because softball and baseball are not considered interchangeable sports for for Title IX purposes, I believe. And what we've done is basically say that, and this is obviously not a new issue, it is a, 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 a decades-long issue, we've said that softball is the game that girls play and baseball is the game that boys play. I mean, should it be that we have more separate girls' baseball leagues the way we have girls soccer leagues, girls travel soccer, girls travel field hockey, or girls travel basketball. 
Yeah, certainly. So, yeah, as soon as Little League was forced back in the 70s to be co-ed, they created Little League softball, right? And so, like, immediately started pushing girls into softball, and they feel that, and they get it. And softball is a different game. Uh, It's different mechanics, and you get these girls who go in between. So if you want to go to college, the closest thing you're going to get to a scholarship is playing softball, right? So you have to change your game in order to do that. And and so it's definitely an issue where we need more, like you said, baseball leagues. We're actually, the U.S. is really bad at this for it being our national pastime. Like if you go to, I mean, Japan has a thriving women's baseball um, culture there where they, it goes all the way up to like semi-pro leagues. And so like they always win the national competitions for women's baseball because they have this entire um set of of leagues there that we just don't have here and so that's certainly it definitely softball is definitely an issue when it comes to baseball because it's a really convenient place to sort of shuffle girls off into and a lot of them just drop out because they don't want to play softball um or they do it and and that's where they end up um and so it's it is a problem and it it creates this weird tension because softball is a real sport and people are very good at it and it's so gendered and so you get this like weird defensiveness from softball when you try to talk about girls playing baseball and it should just be like anyone should be able to choose whichever sport right yeah and the conversation around um being inclusive and baseball extends to African-Americans, obviously. That's been a really mm-hmm. big talking point um, in the last decade as participation in the sport and representation in the major leagues has fallen off. And my view on that has always been so long as you know African-American kids are getting opportunities to play whatever sport they want, if it's a choice that's being made and if baseball is just like not appealing for whatever reason. And if other sports, you know, whether soccer is on the upswing, then that's fine. And so my question is like, does that map onto the issue with girls and baseball as well? Like it wouldn't be as much of a problem if girls are, are choosing to say like, I want to play soccer um, or I want to play some other sport. It's obviously a big problem if there are a lot of girls out there who want to play baseball and are just being denied the opportunity. Yeah, so one of the things that's hard about this is explaining what happens to these girls that they end up not participating in baseball anymore. And so it can be very subtle, right, over time. And so I interviewed Chelsea Baker. She was this famous knuckleballer when she was a teenager. Um, She was very, very good. And so she had all this national press around her. And she came to one of the games that the girls were playing because she lived like an hour away and she heard about it and she wants to see these girls play, right? And so she showed up and I interviewed her about this and she quit before she made it into college. And she told me that the reason was, despite all the fame and how good she was, you know, just a few years earlier, that when she got to high school, they wouldn't play her. And they wouldn't play her because they didn't see a future in her, right? Like she was taking a spot from someone who had a potential future uh, to the majors, right? That's the idea. And so... In high school, she ends up playing like a total of 15 innings. And she's good enough to play a lot more than that, but she's just not getting the space. And she decided it wasn't worth it to her to put her heart into something where she couldn't she couldn't play anymore. And so you get that sort of subtle, the subtle stuff that over time wears you down, right? Um, forget just sort of outright sexism that a lot of them face from male players, from male coaches. Um, I interviewed Veronica Alvarez. She was a U.S. national 
catcher for the U.S. women's team. And she again, she was like Chelsea. She showed up because she heard the girls were there and she wanted to see them and she helped coach them. And she was telling me that there's stuff like a girl will do something well and a coach will say, oh, that's good. You're, that's good enough. That's good for a girl. And they won't get the sort of extra coaching that maybe if they were a boy, they would get, right? Because there's this built-in idea that like they're good enough for who they are and they're not going anywhere. So it doesn't, I don't need them to be better, right? And that's the kind of stuff that pushes these girls out over time. And that's really hard to sort of nail down. It's hard to quantify that kind of stuff. Right. There has to be somewhere for them to go to play. Uh, there's a grassroots organization called Baseball for All that's dedicated to creating girls teams. Major League Baseball in April held a tournament for about 100 girls in L.A. I think the Washington Nationals are holding a camp in August for girls. It's at the Washington Nationals uh, training facility, but it's a USA baseball, it's a USA baseball development camp. Yeah. So there are efforts here. On the other hand, Fox canceled pitch. So Jenny Baker's yeah. career ended prematurely. <laughs> Absolutely. And yeah, baseball for all is great. So if you are looking in your local area to find out like what you can do where you live for your daughter, uh, that's the organization you really want to contact, Baseball for All. Girls Travel Baseball is a very different kind of organization. They really do pull people from all around the country, and there's one girl from Canada um, that, that come together at different tournaments, and you do have to try out the, sort of an elite nature to it. Baseball for All is much more, um, what's the word that I want? Egalitarian and how, and how it... Um, and how it tries to get girls into baseball. Jessica Luther is a writer. She is based in Austin, Texas, where it's very hot. She wrote a piece for Bleacher Report titled A Team of Their Own About All Girls Travel Baseball. Jessica, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to our conversation about the death of the high top basketball sneaker, I would like to let you know that in this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to revisit last week's conversation about internet breaking moments. We'll toss in a bunch of suggestions we got from you guys via email and Twitter and Facebook. I'm sorry that we left out Tyson biting Holyfield's ear. We will address that and other concerns. If you want to hear that conversation, please join Slate Plus for the new low price of just $35 a year or $5 a month. And you can become the proud owner of your very own Slate tote bag, plus get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcast every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. In warmups before game one of the NBA finals, Stephen Curry debuted his new Under Armour sneaker, the Curry 4. Unlike previous numbered curries, the white shoe received positive aesthetic reviews, but it also looked less like a basketball shoe than something worn by George Jetson. All white, tight-fitting, thin, stretchy, upper, encasing the ankle. In that, it is a sign of the times, those times being end times for the huge, gaudy, technologically tricked-out basketball sneaker. Dan Nosowitz wrote a piece for Esquire in June titled The Rise and Fall of the High Top Sneaker. He joins us now. Hey, Dan. 
Hey guys, how's it going? Good. The premise of your excellent piece is that the high top is dead, not because signature high tops were so ugly, but mostly for performance reasons. Lay out what exactly has been changing in the shoe business. So I uh, started watching basketball in the late 90s, early 2000s, which is a time for like insane maximalism uh, throughout all of fashion, whether that's on the basketball court or, or off. Um, and that kind of informed my view of what a basketball sneaker looks like. Um, but it turns out that all that stuff, like visible air bubbles and hexalite and like ratcheting straps and, pumps. uh, pumping. yeah, pumps, pumps. Pump. yeah, they were all pumping. Um, yeah, pumps, all kinds of stuff. That was all kind of nonsense, marketing nonsense. Um, none of it was really necessary. The science doesn't back any of it up. So over the past maybe five to 10 years, um, the science has kind of caught up with the fashion of basketball sneakers and the sneaker makers have kind of started paring down. Everything's becoming a little bit more minimal, a little bit sleeker, a little bit lower. Um, and basketball sneakers now don't really look like they used to. So the signature shoes of um, a bunch of players that you mentioned in the piece James Harden, Damian Lillard, Kevin Durant, all of these guys wear low tops. And um, the one that you mention as the start of the trend is the Kobe. And as we know, all NBA players idolize Kobe Bryant and must follow everything that he does because he is the greatest player of all time. Um, Can you describe the origin story of the Kobe low top and also tell us whether you believe that it is true? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's it's a real like marketing pitch. The problem is that I think it it's mostly true, which really is troublesome because it does read just like ad copy. Um, Should we get into thing, our muse cages before you tell this story? I think that's important. Yeah. Um, yeah. The basic story that Nike tells uh, is that back in 2008, uh, Kobe comes in for um, I think it was his fourth um, Kobe sneaker and Uh, Kobe, even though he grew up uh, outside of Philadelphia, um, was raised largely in Italy and is a big soccer fan. Uh, And he had been watching soccer players and thinking, you know, a lot of the stuff that soccer players do, kind of quick cutting, um, changes of direction, uh, changes in speed, a lot of that stuff is pretty similar to basketball players. And yet you've never seen a high top soccer boot. They just don't, don't do that. And he kind of thought, what if we copied that and made a low top basketball sneaker. So he walks into Nike and says, give me the low it, like cut everything off. Give <laughs> so me the he blows low through it. the doors, marches into <laughs> Phil Knight's office and says, he says, get in your muse cage. <laughs> I got, I got some real groundbreaking stuff for you here. I'm imagining Scotty from Star Trek being like, we can't go any lower. It's as low <laughs> as it can possibly go. It's like lower, lower it. <laughs> What's kind of cool about this is that, um, the sneaker makers, especially Nike, who's kind of at the forefront of all of this, had known for years that the high top is like nonsense, that studies don't back up that a high top sneaker is any more protective against ankle sprains, ankle turning, um, any kind of medical problem that basketball players are going to run into. Um, it's not any better at preventing that stuff than a low top. Um, so they, I think we're probably pretty excited to be like, all right, like if Kobe says we can do it, we can open up this whole new market segment. Um, so they did it. And because it was Kobe, like, I think if it was a lesser player, it wouldn't have caught on quite so much, but it was Kobe. 
at the height of his powers. Um, this was in 2008. So when Kobe says you can do it, everyone kind of thought, all right, well, at least I'll try it. And they tried it and found that it was light and sleek and comfortable and just a, a really good basketball sneaker. And all of a sudden, the, the door was open for low tops to come in everywhere. So basically, we've been brainwashed for more than half a century by the notion <laughs> of Chuck Taylors and high top sneakers providing some sort of support. And I remember thinking, well, I really don't want to play basketball today because my high tops are somewhere else. Right. So this yeah. is where, all, Wait, where were your high tops? I don't know. Maybe they were <laughs> somewhere else. <laughs> You know, on the road, you're on vacation. Someone says, let's go shoot. Let's go play pickup. Got it. I didn't bring my high tops with me. Um, so the, this whole idea that there is support there, that something is helping me not only protect my ankles, but probably play better because I'm more comfortable and I am freer to take the risk that um, I might not take otherwise was just purely bullshit. Mostly bullshit. Except yes. for the psychology uh, part, right? Right. So th the psychology part is really interesting. Um, so the psychology, we have to talk about this term called proprioception, which is a very fun word to say. Uh, proprioception. So proprioception is uh, a psychological term referring to our perception of our body in space. Um, so like if you close your eyes and crook your arm a certain way, like your understanding of where your arm is and how it's angled. Um, so that comes into effect with high tops because even though they aren't actually providing stability and structure, it is still a piece of fabric um, on your ankle that moves when your ankle moves. So it can, it can kind of tell your brain like, oh, your ankle is moved in a certain way. Like maybe you're up in the air and your ankle is in a position that if you landed that way, it would be pretty nasty. It might tell you, okay, I need to adjust the position of my foot. Otherwise something bad could happen. And that's kind of a hard thing to measure. Um, the studies mostly don't support that proprioception is a huge element, but it, it's still there. It's kind of the same reason why um, basketball players wear those neoprene sleeves, um, which don't do anything. Uh, like there's no physiological reason to do those. Um, but they do kind of tell your body or tell your mind where your body is in space. So another interesting thing that you write about in your piece is the separation between on-court style and off-court style and how that's really accelerated um, in recent years with the popularity of different colorways and of kind of shoes that are you know, signature shoes, basketball shoes, but that you would never wear on the court. Um, and it's interesting that, um, you know, I think we're similar generation, Dan, that the shoes that we grew up playing in and watching players play in these, you know, bulkier high tops are now, it's now like the inverse. It's like, those are the shoes that you might see people wearing on the street that are, you know, supposed basketball shoes and then the ones that we might have worn just like kind of casually as kids or teenagers are the ones that the players wear. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah, I, I grew up outside of Philadelphia. So Alan Iverson was like my guy. Um, and his shoes are these like crazy moon boot Reeboks with like four giant bubbles of Reebok was calling it hexalite. It was those like that honeycomb stuff. Um, that you could see through the shoe's sole. They're ridiculous looking. They're like extremely silly. Um, 
and nobody would wear those on the court now. So yeah, it, it, it definitely has been interesting to see that as technology has progressed, and that's kind of meant that basketball sneakers worn by professionals are sort of less fun looking. They're less cool. They're very like precise and um, specific in what they're going for, which is purely performance. Like they, they can look as cool as they can above and beyond that, but they're really strictly about performance. So if you're like a sneakerhead and you want to wear like basketball inspired stuff, you're not going to wear those because for one thing, they might be even uncomfortable to walk around in all day because they're not designed for that. Um, but also they're just not as cool looking and they might not even be recognizable to people as basketball shoes. So how is the basketball shoe industry responding to this? Are we essentially getting a two-tiered approach, creating shoes that effectively sort of dupe the consumer into thinking they're buying basketball shoes? When sort in of, fact, yeah. And then you've got the performance side separate? Yeah, that's sort of what it is. The basketball's like, I mean, the entire basketball industry is just having a real great time with this um, because especially as basketball kind of increases in popularity, um, yeah, the sneaker industry now has like so many different things they can do. So they have their um, new like super high tech on court performance basketball shoes, which people can buy. Um, and then they have their retros, which are like Jordans and um, older Kobe's and like all, all these kind of classic basketball looking sneakers that they can pump out in all these crazy different colorways. Um, but then they also have what they call lifestyle lines, which are designed to sort of look like the on court stuff, but like cooler looking and a little less expensive and designed for walking around in. So, uh, yeah, like Nike and Adidas, they've got so many new ways to sell everyone sneakers. One uh, final new way to sell sneakers that I was interested in is that LeBron in the finals was wearing the Nike Zoom Soldier 11, which is a laceless shoe. Stefan is is smiling. It should be a longer name. That's all. Nike Zoom <laughs> it's like Soldier a, it's like a book subtitle. 11 is the exact correct length for uh, this this shoe title. So there are no laces on this shoe. It's um, you know straps in the front, four straps. Um, is that something that you heard about um, in your conversations with sneaker execs? Is this the next thing that they're going to try to sell us in like five years or there going to be no basketball shoes with laces anymore? Uh, I don't know. It could be, I guess. Um, I mean, an interesting thing that I asked, so I talked to some people at Nike um, and I asked them just really basically like, what does a basketball shoe need? Like what makes it different than any other shoe? And the requirements are really minimal. It's just like, because basketball is unique among sports for the amount of jumping that happens. Um, so you need a lot of impact support, uh, which is yeah different than other sports. Um, you need to make sure that the footbed is really molded um, because your foot really shouldn't move around. You know, like if there's too much flexibility there and your foot kind of like slides over the edge, that's like a real quick way to a broken ankle. Um, so that's sort of it. Uh, so you can do anything like I think laces are a perfectly fine way to strap in, but not the only way necessarily. And given that the only requirements are that like there's impact support and that your foot stays in place, like any way that your foot could stay in place seems fine. So yeah, we could see laceless stuff. We could see um, the return of Velcro, which would be cool. We could see the return of the pump, which also would be cool. Um, but 
I think laces also do a perfectly fine job. So I don't know that they're on their way out. We'll look forward to your next piece, The Rise and Fall of Laces. <laughs> Dan Nosowitz wrote The Rise and Fall of the High Top Sneaker for Esquire. Dan, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. While I was away last week, I noticed that Josh did not mention where I was. And I was, of course, competing in the North American Scrabble Championship, which was in Josh's New Orleans. Wanted to protect your anonymity. I appreciate that. It was my 11th Nationals, and for a third time, I posted a mediocre record of 17 and 14. I finished 25th out of 84 players in Division Two. You know who did a lot better than I did, Josh? Our guest, Will Anderson. He is the new North American Scrabble champion. He went a remarkable 25 and 6 in Division One, where the players are a lot better than in Division Two. He clinched the title with three games to play. He also played Umbelule in one game. That's U-M-B-E-L-U-L-E. And trust me, that is a sick Scrabble play. Will, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, that was uh, quite the play. I'm not sure how I saw that, but uh, thanks for the shout out there. Oh, totally. <laughs> uh, Will, Will, you started playing Scrabble in 2009 after reading some book about the game. Uh, you are a wonderful guy. You are a worthy champion. 25 and 6 in the Nationals is crazy. And we talked the other day after the tournament um, for a piece that uh, we'll be posting on Slate later in the week. And you mentioned that you had 10 tense, close games. And here's one way championship Scrabble is like other sports you need to win the close ones, and you need things to go your way in order to win the close ones. Um, that's absolutely true. And I, I also would add that. I don't think there's any player on earth good enough to win 25 games at the nationals, like without a huge helping of good fortune. Uh, I was, I got break after break after break. So, you know, let's, let's not, uh, you know, mislead anybody that I did this by the sheer force of my genius alone. I got very lucky. Um, but absolutely. I, I had an, really abnormally high number of close back and forth games um in scrabble there's a large portion of games where because of the luck element because the tiles aren't even from game to game that there's a lot of games where you have no chance to win and there's a lot of games where your opponent has no chance to win but it seemed like a really high number of games at this tournament were just neck and neck the whole way and i just got that last break toward the end of the game in almost all of them uh that helped me reach that high win total so so this is an extremely like rational conversation about how sports titles are decided if we're talking about this in a more mainstream way i'm gonna say that you developed momentum early <laughs> in the tournament and that you oh, were yeah. that you were clutch you had the clutch gene and that you came, you know, at the end of the game, you really came through at the end, and your opponents, you saying, cho your opponents you, choked. 
I guess it's, I mean, momentum's one of those things where, I mean, I follow all sports avidly. I'm a little bit more, as I'm sure it's not surprising, but I'm kind of more of the cold-blooded, sabermetric analysis <laughs> type person. So sometimes I have to roll my eyes at the idea of momentum. But at the same time, I feel like it definitely exists, right? Like it, it must exist. You know, hot streaks seem to be real. Um, maybe that's just a illusion, but, um, I feel like they do exist, but they're kind of hard to capture in statistical analysis. Um, and there's in, in a game like Scrabble where, uh, for better or for worse, like I said, there's, there's a major luck element to Scrabble and that luck element can really mess with your competitive mindset at times. You know, when you've drawn poorly two or three games in a row, it's hard to shake that off and play your best game um, in the next games after that. But it's so important that you do that. Um, so momentum exists in Scrabble in the sense that when you're drawing really well, um, you are feeling confident. You're playing better. Um, you're getting those breaks and you aren't having to grapple with those kind of uh, um, variants, you know, the the luck element isn't rearing its ugly head and right. you're not and, having and I, to deal with that. And I think you're right. And when I draw two or three good racks in a row, I think the fourth one is going to be good too. And there is something psychological going on. I am much more sort of zoned in when things are fair to better for me in terms of the luck. And when the luck starts to turn and I have U-U-V-V-W-R-Y on my rack... Right. I get demoralized. And the, you guys don't get as demoralized as lesser players. Well, um, I cer it's certainly been a, a long road for me to reach that <laughs> that kind of Zen mindset. You know, you've in Word Freak, uh, as you well know, Joe Edley, a three time national champion, is renowned for his kind of Zen, even keel approach to the game. And that just does not come naturally for. Most people, myself included, I was, I was, you know, years ago, I started playing Scrabble in maybe 2009, and I would say it took maybe five years before I really started to understand the frame of mind that you, that you must get into to become a champion. You cannot be feeling bad for yourself. You cannot be going and reporting to other people how terribly you've been drawing, um, you know, the horrible letters you've been picking. That's... All of that is wasted cognitive energy that it, Scrabble is simply too hard, too deep of a game to expend that energy on. So um, not not something that I learned overnight or was born with. I was actually an incredibly sore loser as a kid, and that's, that's part of why it, it took me a long time to embrace Scrabble or any game with such a high component of luck because I just – I didn't like – losing any game. I only wanted to play games where I was the winner every time. So if that hadn't changed, I would never have been a good fit for Scrabble. So, All right, let's talk about some specific plays. And this is one that I know really impressed Stefan, that there was a game um, in which you made a really big comeback. Your opponent played the word Greyhens, which you challenged. Um, there was a question of whether Greyhens was acceptable with an A or with an E. Um, can you explain how you can remember a word like that? Can you 
describe to us like how your like word retrieval algorithm works? Yeah, that's a great question. It's um, it's one that's kind of murky for me too, actually, if I'm being honest, but I'll try to kind of put it in greater context. Um, so I, I think any player that has, you know, devoted enough hours to Scrabble and learning words, um, you, you're doing that, you're spending hours of your life over the course of many years um, familiarizing yourself with the dictionary exactly for moments like that. Like you're, what you're doing is developing a familiarity with the ins and outs of this arcane, strangely constructed book, the official Scrabble Players Dictionary. And to, a, you know, some people bristle at this, but to a large extent, um, success in the game, it, it revolves around really understanding the oddities of this book. There are certain words that you feel like should be in the dictionary that aren't, and you kind of learn those as wow, this should be a word, but it's not. Sometimes you look up a word, it's not there, and it kind of makes an imprint on in your memory. But for that word, gray hens, um, I saw my opponent play that word, and it just started ringing alarm bells. Um, the alarm bells that I get whenever a word hits the board that just hasn't imprinted itself on my brain in the way that I would expect any other word in the dictionary to do. So you've and memorized enough that if you, a word doesn't stick out to you, then you know that <laughs> it's more likely that the word doesn't exist than that you've made a mistake and just don't know it. Right. And let me yeah. add here that there are about 187,000 acceptable words in Scrabble in North America. Players <laughs> at Will's level have probably memorized well over 100,000 of them because there's a lot of 13 and 14 and 15 letter words that are not terribly useful in the game. So for words two through 10 letters long, the best players have committed those pretty much to cold memory. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the object of that is to, to get really the level of comfort that I certainly want, and I know that a lot, many of the other elite players aspire to or are have already reached. What your your goal is sort of to choose to turn Scrabble from a word finding game into a word choosing game. You're never going to reach that goal because there's always going to be an element of the words are very difficult to find. Unscrambling words doesn't come that easily to the human brain. But the the goal is to almost completely eliminate that word finding element and turn it into a pure and simple strategic game. That's, that's the goal. Um, I don't think it's necessarily an attainable one. Um, but in that, in that moment, I'm seeing this word hit the board. Um, I was down 100 and 150, 160 points in the game. And I can almost, I can't believe my good fortune. Like I was saying before, I just kept getting these breaks and I just didn't think that word was in the dictionary. I, I just, I'm not sure how to, I didn't have a rule for that word. It turns out that's the only word that has gray in the, in the suffix or, or component of the word that doesn't go both ways with gray, G-R-A-Y and G-R-E-Y. Actually, the only other word like that is gray out, like a, a partial blackout. Um, uh, so every other word, there's a bunch of them, can go both ways uh except for that one and i just stefan is shaking like his shaking his head in uh, disbelief no in wonderment <laughs> i mean in awe 
And in that same game, Will, your opponent played Regather as one of his, uh, this crazy run he went on at the beginning of the game yeah, that put him up right. 150 points. And then rather than play a bingo using all of your tiles for the extra 50 point bonus, somewhere safely, a common word elsewhere on the board, you chose to stick a P in front of Regather making pre-gather and then running a bingo down a triple lane per- permits or permits. Yeah. Um, and it turns out that pre-gather is not acceptable. So you put the yeah. pressure on him to do what you would do later in the game, which was challenge, and he didn't. Sure, yeah. That was um, a calculated risk, just knowing that uh, I was down by so much that if I used the easier areas of the board to play my bingo on that turn, and I had many options to do so with valid words, the board was just not going to have enough opportunities for me to complete the comeback. Um, I had to, you know, I had to make a little bit of a risk. I know that I personally would have a tough time challenging the word pre-gather because it's one of those words where it's a nine-letter word, first of all. That's kind of a blind spot for many players because you don't see that many nine-letter words. Most of the words you'll see in a Scrabble game are eight letters or below. So if you're going to make a gambit like that, a nine-letter word is a decent place to start. Um, and it's a pretty plausible-sounding nine-letter word. And it word. seems, yeah, it seems plausible. Another good way to make a bluff in a game is when you play a word that looks like a regular word and should, maybe could, you could even consider using it in a sentence, but it just happens to not be in the dictionary. Those are great candidates for... Uh, bluffing or or phonying, as we say. So, Will, you come from the world of Boggle, and this is the moment when I have a reverie like Homer Simpson going to the land of chocolate. The land (laughs) of Boggle. That's Um, right. There was a piece that Slate's editor-in-chief, Julia Turner, wrote a few years ago in which you and Stefan were on opposite sides of the really vicious Boggle divide. Mm -hmm. And you were... The bottle oh, wars that are known in the history books. Many died. Um, <laughs> you were uh, a voice in defense of Boggle. Um, can you explain to us why Boggle is a great word game? Well, um, obviously, I will always have fond and, memories and, and of And why Boggle. Scrabble is superior. <laughs> well, I continue to maintain, I, I will continue to be a neutral voice in this debate, as fond as I am of both games, that there is a time and a place for both, and that nobody is wrong for liking one over the other, um, just because they are different and have different sensibilities and skills involved. Um, word, someone that has the you know a true passion for word games is going to find you know, both of them are a lot of fun. Scrabble, of course, far deeper, far more strategic. If you are a lover of um, deep thinking and puzzles and um, kind of, you know, multi-order, you know, complex answers to the puzzles that you're trying to solve, you can't beat Scrabble. Boggle's not going to hold a candle to that. On the other hand, Boggle has an incredible, it's it's just an incredibly fast-paced game. Um, you kind of get a rush from playing Boggle that Scrabble can provide, but doesn't always provide. And in Boggle, there is no luck element at all. Um, the better player is going to win a lot. 
more than in Boggle than they do in Scrabble. Um, for fans, for people that don't like that luck element in Scrabble, Boggle is a great alternative where everybody's dealing with the same letters every round. It's a little bit more fast-paced. So um, I, as as you mentioned, I was weaned on Boggle long before I ever took up Scrabble, and uh, I think it stood me in great stead. I learned a ton of words, but I love both games, um, on, and man. I continue well, to. This is, this is like sports radio. Have a hot take. Take a stand. You're the national always. Scrabble champion, man. All right, before we let you go, we are going to do a little lightning round anagramming. Okay. These will all be sports-related words. All right. Some of them might not be acceptable in Scrabble. All right. I'll so, have to use natural ability. Then. Natural that's... sports fan ability. All right. Here we go. First okay. one. I'm going to read them in alphabetical order in Scrabble. That's called an alphagram, Josh. Okay. Okay. A-A-C-E-E-H-H-L-N-O-P-P-T-Y. Oh, my God. This one is acceptable in Scrabble. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to read it again for the okay. listeners out there. A-A-C-E-E-H-H-L-N-O-P-P-T-Y. <laughs> uh, boy, this is not one that you would be likely to see in a game, whatever it is. Um, You've got to study so this, your, your 14s, Will, clearly. So this is a valid This, this is, is a, a valid, valid word. Scrabble word. This is acceptable. Yeah. Um, gee, is it... You want a clue? The the referee is coming to take Will's trophy away. This is that's harsh. It's a handsome trophy too. I thought it's it'd be a, such shame, a long be a shame word. to Jeez. lose that trophy. Um, I don't know. Does it start with Polly? Is it a no? No. Think of football. It's a, it's football related. It's in the news. Football related. Mm-hmm. Oh, encephalopathy. Yes. You oh, you almost let me down there, Will. All right. Here's number two. Sorry. Yes. T E. Of course. Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. All right. Number two. This one is uh, not acceptable. In Scrabble, we'll go with, uh, okay. this is a proper name. It's a famous athlete. Ready? A-E-K-N-N-M-O-O-O-P-T-T-U. Oh, my gosh. A-E-K-N-N-M-O-O-O-P-T-T-U. Is this a, is this two it's names? A, or? Contemporary athlete last it's name. A, it's a surname. It's a surname. Oh, it's uh, Giannis and Tetacumpo. Yes, of course. Of course, Giannis. Yeah. All right. Let's do one more. Um, This is a famous historical figure. One name. Okay. D-D-E-E-E-H-I-I-I-P-P-P-S. (laughs) <laughs> wow. Not a lot of variety in the letters no. here. D-D-E-E-E-H-I-I-I-P-P-P-S. It's not often you have three triplicated letters A in famous one historical name. figure? Is this like a Greek person with like Ipides or something? Phidippides, we'll give it to you. <laughs> the, the Greek marathoner. I see. Okay. Well, that's... I'm it's impressed. Just an educated, it was an educated guest. I can't say I knew that. Uh Individual. Right. I have one more. Th- I have one more thing I want to ask about before we go. I am impressed sure. with the anagramming. So um, you're just at this event where um, you're the bell of the ball. You're in. You're among your people. It must be incredibly fun, and it must be very gratifying to have the reward. 
now today you get to talk to us, which is cool. Um, but you're back to your normal life. Like, is it a huge come down? Like, you're not in Scrabble land anymore. Nobody gives a shit about Will, except for me and Stefan and, you know, everybody's listening to the show. But well, my mom would take issue with that, of course. Um, but that was I'm a little kidding. that was a little harsh. That was a little. Uh, harsh. No, I, I totally I the, under, understand the spirit of the question. <laughs> of course, um, you know, it's yes. The, the simple answer is, of course, it is, you know, um, especially because the Nationals is something that doesn't just kind of float into your life and then leave just as quickly as it came. But you are actually, I, you know, and many, many of the other competitors are actively prepping for it for months. You know, we're preparing, we're studying words, we're, you know, that's kind of our focus in the Scrabble part of our, of all of our lives for quite some time in the lead up. So, um, Absolutely, is a bit. It's a bit of a come down, but to be honest, um, I'm still, I'm still feeling pretty good. I'm not sure when when that's gonna wear off, but I probably I after like, after the ticker tape parade. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Uh, after I get my you know star on the Scrabble Walk of Fame. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I'm still feeling good. Um, I have no plans of you know. Uh, taking time off or anything like that. I'm just going to see what other events on the calendar are appealing and hop right back in. And um, it's, you know, we'll see if maybe in the coming weeks I start to, you know, feel that come down. But right now I'm still on cloud nine. So, um, yeah. Will Anderson is the North American Scrabble champion later in the week on Slate. You can read a roundtable conversation with Will tournament runner-up and Scrabble prodigy Mac Meller and me breaking down one of their games at the tournament. Will, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. And now it is time for After Balls or Quasi After Balls. We're just going to have a little fun with it this week. And for a title. We never never have fun. It's going to be a bold experiment. In fun. Um, I wanted to ask you what your favorite bingo was because um hasn't been that much of an opportunity for you to talk about Scrabble this week. Yeah. So just wanted to give you the chance to Thanks, really appreciate it. revisit the tournament. What, yeah. was, what was your favorite bingo? Um, I'll give you a couple, maybe three, five, ten. Uh, no. So I had whooshed on my rack, W-O-O-S-H-E-D, which is oh, good. That's really good. And then I'm sitting there thinking, all right, there's one place to play it. If he blocks it, I'm screwed. But if he puts a D down, I am golden, and he dropped a D on a triple. I played Woodshed for like 100-plus, which was pretty awesome. Took it to the Woodshed. Took it to the Woodshed. But that's not really an obscure word. I think Mirador was a pretty good obscurish word that I played, M-I-R-A-D-O-R. But my favorite bingo was Dubloon, D-O-U-B-L-O-O-N. Very appropriate for New Orleans, too. Right. The Mardi Gras theme. So one thing I'm extremely disappointed in that you didn't know it, or maybe you did and just uh, didn't mention it, is the record of 17 and 14. So there are 31 games Mm -hmm. 
in Scrabble. Do you know what the significance of 1714 is? It's a football score. It's the most common. Common. Oh my God, it's John Boyce. It's the most common it's the most possible common possible football score. Of uh, if there are 31 total points, it's the most common possible score. Yeah. But it's second overall to 20 to 17. Yeah. Well, when they move it up Congratulations. to the 37 games, I'm sure I'll be 20 and 17. <laughs> I'm sure you will be. All right. For After Balls this week, uh, we're going to be doing a couple top five lists. There's a guy named Johnny Carver on Twitter who asks his followers for their top five in various sports type things. Stefan and I each chose one of the prompts. Uh, Stefan, why don't you go first? What's your top five? Uh, I'm going to go with top five sports moments that I've experienced in my lifetime. And this can be things that you've watched and participated in or just that you I you've... think both. I'm going to go watched and participated in. And my list uh, started out at five, six, seven, eight. We're up to nine. <laughs> and I think they're all valid and I'm older. So I think I should get a few more spots. Let's limit it to five. All right. Are we going to stop <laughs> at nine? No, we're definitely not going up to nine. You have to, you have to, you have to choose five. That's the whole point of the exercise. Okay, so you have I'm to make hard give you choices. Nine through six, and then I'm just going to say nine no. through six. No, explain. no, I'm doing it. <laughs> Reggie in 1977, I was two thirds present for, as listeners will know, because I was forced to leave the game when he hit three home runs. Aaron I am Boone's playing these afterballs under under protest. Watched it on TV. Chris Chambliss's home run for the Yankees in 1976. Watched it on TV. The Jets-Cubs game in Pelham Little League in 1975, we lost our first game 21 to nothing to the Cubs, and then we won 6-5. to five. It was the greatest moment of my young life. All right, top five. Miracle on Ice 1980 was not shown live, so there was no way to watch it. I was ice skating. You didn't know the outcome. I was ice skating, so there was a, someone was listening, and we heard about it. Number four, Bucky Dent 1978. Home run playoff game against the Red Sox. Was not present for that. I was on J at JV soccer practice and I had a transistor radio and I was running around the field in joy after the home run. Number three, USA Japan women's soccer 2015. Vancouver World Cup final. Was there with my daughter, five to two. That was a pretty crazy first half. Very exciting. Number two, also soccer. Perhaps you can guess this one, Josh. Mike Pesca was present. We celebrated this together. Landon Donovan's goal against Algeria at the 2010 World Cup in South Africa. That was awesome. That was pretty great. I have watched that video in uh, more recent years just to remember how awesome it was. Oh, and I've watched the, the compilation video of fan reaction when I'm feeling down. <laughs> Sometimes I will load that up. Makes well, me feel very happy. I get all tingly. It was I, great. When I, when I watch that. All right. Top sports moment in my life. What's the subject of an afterball? Penn against Harvard, 1982, miracle field goal, second chance, headline in the Daily Pennsylvanian, miracle on 33rd Street. I was there for that, obviously. Josh, what have you chosen as a five? And you can do nine if you want. Seriously, I don't mind. I'm definitely only going to go five because I've laid the marker down. I think it's important. It's like only picking one bracket in uh, March Madness. Look, you're the guy who fills out 18 and then crows when you get three of the final four teams, right? That's your, that's your journey. All right. So I'm going to do my top five favorite athletes ever. Um, I'm going to leave off Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf because I've talked about him before. So these, this, no slight intended. These are my so five. So you're saying he's sixth. I'm not saying that. 
I would, I would never That's say exactly that. exactly what you're saying. I would never be a huge hypocrite like that. I would also never mention such athletes as Todd Walker. <laughs> I would never do that. Um, all right. One of them is uh, Roger Federer. We're not and going I'm, one to five? We're not going five, four, three, two, one? No. I'm just going to name five. Huh. Interesting. Um, I'm going to go with Federer, and that is a sign of my extreme honesty in doing this because I know that's such a lame choice. That's a lame choice that everyone loves Roger Federer. But if I'm being honest and looking deep inside myself, Roger Federer is one of my favorite athletes of all time in the top five. Uh, I'm also going to go with Randy Livingston, who was my childhood hero. Uh, He went to uh, Newman High School in New Orleans. I watched him play very many times. High school player of the year. Um, Great passer. Amazingly athletic as a point guard. Tore up his knee before he went to LSU. It was never the same, although he did carve out a, uh, I think, decade-long NBA career, but uh, maybe the most fun I've ever seen consistently watching an athlete in person was all those times I got to see Randy Livingston play um, at the height of his greatness. Um, I'm going to go with my baseball choice uh, with Howard Johnson, Hojo of the Mets. Um, In the height of young Josh's baseball card obsession, I had a kind of specialty in Howard Johnson cards that are now worth collectively zero dollars and zero cents. Um, but he was my favorite Met at a, in a period in which I was a, a big baseball fan, the height of my baseball fandom, but a low point in Mets history. And this, this dude was like, you know, 30 home runs, 30 stolen bases. Um, I had ex- very little interest in learning about him as a human being, but I enjoyed uh, watching him switch hit on the baseball field. Loved Hojo. Uh, A more recent selection, probably my favorite athlete as an adult fan, is Tyron Matthew of LSU. Has the best YouTube highlight video of any football, college football player ever, except maybe Reggie Bush. But I would put him up there in the top uh, one or two. And just watching a defensive player be able to do what he did and like score points consistently for his team and have such a great personality. It's just like the most fun LSU football player that I've ever seen. Then my last one, I'm going to go with the Saints pick, and I'm going to reveal this one to Stefan by unbuttoning my button-down shirt. <laughs> there is a T-shirt I, I on brought, underneath. I brought listeners. a prop. Yeah, it's a, full, it's a full chest tattoo <laughs> that I have of this individual. <laughs> Who is it, Stefan? It's Hall of Famer Ricky Jackson. Yeah, so he was part of the famed New Orleans Saints linebacking crew, the Dome Patrol, in the 80s. Um, Him and Sam Mills and Pat Swilling and Von Johnson, as you know. Ricky Jackson, um, it's more of like a group selection, but again, because I believe believe in the spirit of the challenge, I can only pick one. The really cool thing about him, along with his ability to sack the quarterback, was that he'd suffered some – I think it was in a car accident that he like broke his jaw and he came back with like a Bane-esque, this was pre-Bane, this was invented by Ricky Jackson, just like the most bars, it was like the exact opposite of like the one bar like kicker mask. There were just like bars upon bars upon bars to protect his jaw. And I thought that was really cool. That's pretty cool. And he also is wearing a neck roll. In your T-shirt, he is wearing, which I like, and the is, gigantic 90s shoulder pads. <laughs> he is wearing the neck roll. I always thought the neck roll was cool. Yeah. So that is my five. It's a good five. 
Six. <laughs> really? Seven. Actually. Five. Five. Cinco. That's our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. Our intern is Max Cohen. To listen to past shows and to subscribe or just to reach out to us. We like it when you reach. Go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. You should also check out the Political Gab Fest, the one that started it all. And by it, we mean podcasts on Slate, right? That's right. Okay, just checking. You can listen every week as Emily Bazelon, John Dickerson, and David Plotz talk about Trump and even sometimes things that are not Trump. It's Stephen Colbert's favorite podcast. It was voted the best political show by iTunes listeners. Check out new episodes every Thursday evening at slate.com slash gabfest. I'm Stefan Fatsis for Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Then, Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now, Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.